Please be seated. I began preaching this morning at 8, telling the gathered congregation there in the chapel that I wasn't exactly sure if I were going to preach a sermon this morning or give my testimony this morning or exercise a rant. And then when I finished preaching, I was like, rant. <laughs> it was definitely a rant. So I'm going to exercise a rant with you again this morning for the second time. And the focus of the rant happens to be this relationship that the Western world has with the concept of faith and the professional challenge that that presents for a religious professional like me. And in order to enter into an understanding of this dynamic, I need to go backwards in my life a little bit and share some personal experience. And that personal experience begins in two childhood experiences that I had. Um, one, maybe before the age of 10, and one somewhere around the age of 14. I should say before I describe those situations that I was somewhat of a precocious child, especially when it came to religion. And I say that somewhat ironically because I grew up in a family that for the most part was either neutral on religion or maybe tending toward like the slightly negative or cynical. But for some reason, religion and spiritual practice was always just sort of a part of my constitution, and it was something of which I was conscious of at an early age, and maybe even felt at some point of like, maybe I just don't fit into this unit quite right. I would also tell you that I was, and I am today, if this means anything to you, an Enneagram Eight. So I have never come across a rule that I didn't have at least an inner urge to bend or break, characteristic of the eight. The first experience that I would tell you that I had was somewhere before the age of 10 where some down-the-street neighbors reached out to my family and invited our family to a Billy Graham crusade. I believe that the invitation was moti motivated somewhat by, like, misguided evangelical zeal and a, a side helping of pity. 
My brother and I were raised by a single parent, and I'm pretty sure these neighbors down the street knew that we didn't go to church, and so they reached out to my family, those poor kids, they need some religion, let's see if they might come to the Billy Graham crusade. Somehow, my brother and I ended up going to the Billy Graham crusade. My mom, not there. (laughs) I'm not sure what the excuse was, but part of me wishes that I had had it to use it. (laughs) The experience itself was much like you have had your own experience of the Billy Graham crusade or how you would imagine. It was real. I, I would say that I can get cynical on the televangelists, but everything that was happening in the crusade itself was real. It was energized, it was passionate, it was powerful, and it felt very authentic. The words of Dr. Graham had meaning, and they found some purchase in my life in a very real way. And the songs that were sung were somewhat familiar to me, just by growing up in a somewhat southern culture and just the passive wave of Christianity that watches across the entirety of the community in those particular geographic locations. And the moment that is sure to come at every crusade came, where those who had yet to give their life over to Christ were invited up and out of their seats and down the stairs to come out onto the field of Rice Stadium and be prayed for and pray with Dr. Graham. And when that moment came up, my older brother Reed arose, began walking down the stairs, turned around, and looked up at me, who was sitting firmly in my chair, I'm sure with my arms crossed. And there was an aspect of that experience for me. The thing that was going on on the inside was like, I want to affirm this is real, and I even want to affirm this is real for my brother, but there's just, there's something missing. There's something missing for me in this very moment. I don't mean to say that it wasn't authentic and heartfelt I just mean to say, for Jimmy Bartz, there was a felt experience there that was missing. Fast forward a few years. I've told you time and time again that I have spent my summers on a ranch in northeastern New Mexico. That was a powerful and um, formative experience for me as a child. And I give credit to that experience for me feeling so at home in this place and in this context. That ranch sat in a wide mountain valley that was bifurcated by a river, though the scale of it was less dramatic than the valley that we are so privileged to live in. And there was a portion of the time of the summer where that ranch operated a camp a ranch camp, very similar to um, our community's Teton Valley Ranch Camp. It was not a Christian camp. It was not a faith-based camp, but it was also not absent spirit. 
You could feel it on that property in a very real way. While this camp was not a Christian camp, it was run by a woman who was an evangelical Christian. And we had this tradition every year where, where over the course of the camp session, we would have one night that was marked on the calendar at camp headquarters as movie night. It was a great night that we all looked forward to. Um, and, and it was one of those deals where like they shipped in like a couple of movie reels. And it would be some Disney epic like the Apple Dumpling Gang. <laughs> and we would all sit together on the floor and we would watch this movie and we would have popcorn and we would bring our sleeping bags and our pillows and enjoy a movie together. Being in front of a screen, which was something that was absent to the camp experience for the most part. And on this one particular year, movie night came, we grabbed our sleeping bags and our pillows, we moved into headquarters, they loaded up the reels, and the movie that they showed us was a documentary put together by a Christian relief organization that was working on famine relief. And the film itself was not the Disney epic that we all expected, but rather an expose on the reality of famine in the Ethiopian um, area of Africa. And after the movie was over, the camp director came forward in her role and explained that we were not watching a Disney movie to raise our awareness about other human beings who were in need. And she made the suggestion that we as a camp could lend aid in a particular way. She suggested that all of us on the very next day sleep in, that we would not have breakfast on that day. And in the absence of breakfast, we would take the resource, the financial resource that the camp saved by not feeding us that one meal of the day, which was, I don't remember, 500 or 900 or $1,200, and that we would take that resource and we would send it to this agency that was helping to feed hungry people in Africa. And then she put an asterisk by what she said with her words. She said, I don't want to force anybody's hand here. So if this is something that you don't feel comfortable doing or you are not willing to do for whatever reason or another, I will make you breakfast in the camp kitchen the next morning. I can tell you that I and everyone else in my cabin and beyond my cabin that I could influence was in the kitchen the next morning eating breakfast, prepared generously and lovingly by the camp director. It wasn't because I wasn't moved by the experience of those facing hunger and famine. It was just 
something around this religious sensibility that like the Billy Graham crusade, there was something about faith that became transactional in that moment. And for some reason, it just didn't sit right with me. Perhaps it was the Enneagram 8. Perhaps it was just adolescent defiance. But there was something about that experience that persisted. Now, I need to go backwards a bit to explain to you what was motivating me in those moments. As a kid, on a particular day, when I was nine years old, somewhat coincidentally or spiritually or mystically or miraculously, I had this very real moment. I know exactly where I was and exactly what I saw and what I experienced is enormously difficult, if not impossible, to explain to you with words. I was sitting on a rock on a hill overlooking the valley that I described on that ranch. I was by myself. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I was some little guru kid out meditating on a rock in nature in that moment. I don't exactly know how I ended up there by myself. I'm sure my friends were somewhere not very far away from me doing what kids do in the mountains in the summertime. But I found myself in this place on this rock, and as my gaze cast across the valley, I had this felt experience it was so powerful. The experience with a, was a combination of feeling so small and so insignificant in the face of such glory, and yet at the same time feeling so empowered and connected. Now, here's the deal. You expect to hear this from me. Look at the clothes I'm wearing. Look at the place I'm telling this story. But I have to remind you, I was a nine-year-old kid in an irreligious family. And I had this non-narrative-based experience of God. That, and the only way that I can describe that experience to you absent the language that I've come to wear as a Christian person, is bliss. It was a moment of profound bliss where I was so connected and so settled that it informed my thought and feelings going forward 
even in childhood. Now I need to like gather us back in the room for a second and say, I tell you this story this morning because that experience of bliss is faith. And we who have grown up in the West, and I don't mean the Wild West, I mean the Western Hemisphere, those of us who grew up and are growing up and inhabit and embody Western principles come to every experience in life, including faith, through reason. And I want to tell you that bliss and faith are holy, W, holy, unreasonable. They are topics that are unreasonable that we consistently, we religious professionals, accidentally and with the best of intentions, try to lead you toward through reason. C.S. Lewis is the icon of this reality. Mr. Lewis, thank you for your beautiful words. Thank you for your uncanny ability to create an apologetic, an argument for something so mystical and cosmic. And yet, and yet, there's something more than what you are explaining. And now I'm going to depart further from my rules about preaching. And I'm going to preach a sermon on three of the readings that we have today, rather than one of the readings or one line or one word from one of the readings. And I want you to try to hang with me here for a moment so we might try to touch on something that's so untouchable. We have this first reading from the 40th chapter of Isaiah. It's an important chapter in all the prophecy of Isaiah. And it begins not where we have this morning, but the chapter begins in this familiar place, in this Advent place of prepare the way of the Lord. It's that Isaiah echoing John the Baptist that we hear before Christmas, make his ways straight in the wilderness. Here comes someone, something that is going to be so powerful that it's going to rattle creation in an extraordinary way. And then he goes on to do what prophets do. He's like, Israel, you think you got it going on, but you don't. You're lost in this thing. You're lost in your ability to connect to God. Woe to you 
It's not happening. And then we have this dose that we're served up, this side helping of prophecy that we're served up this morning that brings us to the magnitude of this experience itself. Have you not seen? Have you not heard? Have you not known of the power of God? Isaiah's prophecy is trying with words to point us towards something that is indescribable with words. Isaiah's prophecy calls us grasshoppers, equates us with blades of grass that can just be wiped away in an instant, in a breath, in a very moment, and somehow, somewhat strangely, and absolutely unreasonably, we find ourselves insignificant and vulnerable in the face of such power, and yet unified to it in an extraordinary way. Isaiah is trying to preach about the bliss that we feel when we are connected to the creator and author of the universe. Isaiah is trying to say, you Israel who have reduced religious experience to following the rules have lost something that is so much more and so much more beautiful and so bold and so powerful that it can take you over in the most beautiful way. And in the very next beat of our lectionary, we're delivered this reasoning from Paul as he writes his first letter to the church in Corinth. And when we hear these words about gospel and, and we hear the encouragement or the call that the faith makes upon our lives to share the gospel with other people in loving and somewhat innovative ways, I'm going to get back to that. We in our Western minds, especially Episcopalians, are for the most part like, well, yep, that's where you lose me. <laughs> Don't have a soapbox, not going to stand on a corner and show people the tenets of the Nicene Creed and ask them if they believe in what the tenets of the Nicene Creed say. And it's no, 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 that's not it. It's connected to this blissful moment. Paul's also influenced by the early Western thinkers, this Platonic thought, so he's trying to use this Western framework to describe it. And so he says, no, I'm, I've been so taken over by this experience of love, of faith, of bliss, that it is this great privilege, even sometimes a burden, because it almost always fails, to share with you my experience. And I'll be an innovator in that. I'll go to great lengths. And to the Jews, I became a Jew. And to those who are 
under the law to those who are servants or slaves or indentured servants, I became one of those too. And to those who are outside the law, to the Greeks who are sitting outside the temple, I, I took the, the language and the context and the culture of the Greeks on in such a way so that I might maybe, just maybe, have a chance to share this experience of bliss with them in a powerful way as to move them and open their lives up to this reality. It would be a, a strategy to some degree if, where like if I came from Los Angeles and I came to you here in Jackson, and I did come from Los Angeles, and I was trying to connect you to this blissful moment, and I was to say like, no, no, guys, you all know what I'm talking about. It's that moment where you see the swell on the horizon beginning to merge and you turn your board and you do use some human effort to paddle into that wave and you pop up and you drop in and then whoosh, you feel something that's so much more than you where you're so connected and you lose this sense of time. If I told you that story rather than saying, no, no, you live in Jackson, you all know the experience, powder just below your kneecaps, you drop in, you turn, you link another turn with that turn, all of a sudden your turns are linked in a way that you don't understand and you lose all track of time and you're not thinking about anything, you're just there. It's stoke, it's beautiful, and all of you are like, yeah, maybe not all of you, but most of you in the room, most of you in the room are like, yeah, I get it, I've been there, I know what it's like, and you recall this felt experience in your heart until there's that one nerd in the back of the room who's like, ah, uh, sorry, Jimmy, but I just want to point out we tried to put people in the fMRI machine and look at their brains around Stoke, and it's just not there. <laughs> it's not real. We can't measure it. It's like, man, I'm here to tell you, it's real. It's real. It's unreasonable. It's absolutely unreasonable. But it's real. It's so real. And then we have this next beat, this great reading that we have from Mark's gospel. And Mark is so, he's so like straightforward and and somewhat stale in his retelling of these stories. And it's like Jesus and his friends need a break, and they hear that Andrew and Peter's mom is sick. And so they leave their work, and they go to the house of Andrew and Peter, and they heal, and Jesus heals Andrew and Peter's mom. And then that great line that rattles all of us Episcopalians is like, she gets up and begins to serve them, right? <laughs> and so then we preach a sermon, we Episcopal clergy preach a sermon about, about the patriarchy. 
and it's real, it's there, it's in the story. But I mean to tell you, the story is not about the fact that Jesus and Andrew and Peter can't take a frozen pizza and put it in the microwave. It's not that Jesus becomes, or Andrew and Peter become like Will Ferrell in Wedding Crashers. It's not that. It's, the story is not about that. The story is about the access of the experience of bliss and what happens. And the biblical narrative itself, particularly the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, uses this metaphor of healing. It's such an important metaphor because it's this idea that like when we're not connected to bliss, to love, to faith, there's like something not connecting there in a way, it is as if we are ill and that we are in need of some sort of healing. And when whatever happened when Jesus came, in whatever way, whenever that thing that was broken apart got put back together, whenever those two plugs were plugged back in, there's an immediate response that we have. And that responsiveness that we have when we're sitting in full and embodied faith is service. It's an extension of love and care and nurture. It's an expression of gratitude through serving the other. It is decidedly not a responsibility or something we should or we are supposed to do. It is a response from the overwhelming, overflowing sense of well-being that we have in that moment of bliss or connection or love, or faith. Faith is entirely unreasonable. If I were to leave you with one thing this morning, one thing we might do, one thing we might put into action in our own lives, I would encourage you to let it go, to stop trying to figure it out to stop trying to make sense of something that doesn't make sense that is even nonsensical and to open yourselves up to just feeling it and receiving it in a powerful way.
words do not do justice to that instruction. Because while it is simple, it ain't easy. Amen.